What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Sean Humes for episode 224 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. And we have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, a big UFC card preview, a lot of news in Bellator, some boxing news as well, too. But before we do that, um, Sean, I want to let everybody know how you're doing on December 8th. Uh, not too bad. Today, actually, I uh, didn't have to training anybody so it's the first time like in a while that I've actually been home prior to starting the show instead of just getting in like two or three minutes ago but uh outside that that's been, it's been pretty cool so a couple days there's one day I was out there and it's 30 degrees these people still sent their their kid out to go you know get their workout off workout outside and I'm like this is nuts dude so I was like out for three days three hours straight just like 30 degree weather running drills with kids and I'm like this is ridiculous like I don't understand why y'all's parents got y'all out here at this time, but because man, it's 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 another version of daycare. Yeah, I guess some some of them, some of them I think it is. Some of them they really want their kid to have a shot. Like I guess their kids come. You know, it's like if your kid you had a kid and they were complaining like nobody ever believed in me and I want to just start this little business and so you put them in and they're like oh I don't feel like getting up today. You're like nah, you gonna get up and you gonna do this because I had to hear about it for so many weeks or months or years. So now that I set this opportunity up for you, you are not going to be sleeping through or I'm too tired to or I don't feel like it today. That's kind of how I look at it. So we got quite a bit to talk about tonight. Let's go ahead and jump into that. Before we do, as always, I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this show. As always, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe our content wherever you may see it. You can go over to MMARatingsNet.com for some foremost that because that is our flagship platform. If you are interested in our podcast, you can check us out on social media at MMARatingsNet on Instagram and Twitter. And you can check out all our podcasting channels at Apple, Apple Podcasts. Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify as well. And you can go over to YouTube at MMA Ratings and check us out there too as well. I'm on um, social media as R. Garcia underscore sports. Schwann is at Black Jordan Green, and we are definitely always sharing plenty of content there. So let's start and, and hit up what we have coming up on Saturday. with UFC 269, and this is a very big... Uh, UFC showcase. I feel like it's it's the first big one that's felt like this in, in in a little while. I may be wrong about that, but I'm actually really interested in everything that I see across this card. So we have two title fights and a bunch of other uh, other important fights as well. So Shawan, let's hit this title fight, the first one or the main event first and foremost. We have um, Charles Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier fighting for the 155 pound title that Oliveira has won. Uh, he he won the vacated title. After Khabib let go of it, um, defeating Michael Chandler earlier earlier this year in the second, third round of their fight. I don't really remember, but he finished him via strikes. And he's going up against Dustin Poirier, an individual that many people kind of consider the uncrowned champion, which is something we will have to discuss tonight. But this is going to be this is excellent matchmaking. Um, I'm still kind of surprised we live in a world where Charles Oliveira is the lightweight champion. Um, looking back to when he began, probably would never have thought that that was going to occur. But this is where we are today. So, Shawan, let's start from the top. What are your thoughts about this fight here? Uh, it's pretty interesting just because uh, you haven't seen Justin Poirier versus somebody else in quite a while. So that's, that's, a, that's a big adjustment. Um, I think it's really – I think – it's a very good matchup as far as both guys can expose certain weaknesses in the other. In the case of Dustin Poirier, when he's faced more dynamic type athletes, 
um, he hasn't done great. Um, Michael Johnson, I know that was a while ago. That was lost. Conor McGregor, when he first lost him. Khabib Nurmagomedov, I can't talk today. That When he lost to him, even the fight against Justin Gaethje, early on, Justin Gaethje was able to do a certain amount of work and have a certain amount of impact on um, Dustin Poirier. He's, he's not really a fast starter. He's more of a guy who works his way into finding his rhythm, works his way into finding his range. And early on, more guy, guys who have a little bit of dynamic aspects to the game and guys who are a little bit more aggressive tend to get to him early on. Um, I mean, even Dan, even Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker got to him early. It, he's the guy who you can get to very early. And Charles Oliveira is very long, very explosive, uh, hits pretty hard, and has a pretty balanced skill set of strikes, not to mention his wrestling and his, his submissions. So early on, I, I think he can probably get to Dustin. And then on the flip side, a lot of the wins that De- Charles has had recently, he hasn't faced a guy who's had a very balanced and deep skill set as far as the striking goes. And while Dustin isn't a great kicker, his boxing and his setups and his footworks and his ability to hook off the jab, set everything up with jabs, throw combinations, and kind of walk guys into punches or pressure guys with pressure guys with his footwork and then finish them with punches is something that Oliveira hasn't faced in a while. We know Tony Ferguson. Ferguson doesn't have great hands. Chandler is more of an attribute-based striker. And then you start looking at the list of people Oliver has beaten recently. He hasn't really beaten a, guy, a lot of guys who were sound, nuanced, experienced, seasoned strikers against a certain caliber of opponent. That's something Destin Poirier is. So some of the advantages he's used to having, some of the openings that he's used to, he's he's used to have, and some of the things he's allowed to get by because guys couldn't punish it because a lack of footwork, a lack of positioning, a lack of combinations will now be exposed or at least at the very little, very least, challenge by Dustin Poirier. So it's, it's very interesting how they kind of, they're each other's kryptonite in a sense, but they also, due to the limitations of each fighter, it might not be possible for them to fully exploit it the way they would like to, exploit their opponent's weakness. Something I was really thinking about today, as I listened to a lot of people talk about this fight, obviously they talk about the, the strengths that both fighters have, and the general consensus seems to be that Dustin holds the holds the advantage in the striking space, and Charles holds it uh, in the grappling space. Um, there's two two questions. Well, one question I want to ask is, where is the gap bigger? Does Dustin hold a bigger gap over Charles when it comes to the striking, or does Charles hold a bigger gap over Dustin when it comes to uh, jujitsu? I think the gap in the jujitsu and even the wrestling is bigger than the gap in striking. I, I've seen guys. Michael Johnson isn't a great striker. And you can say it was years ago, but the fact of the matter is it, he still got to Dustin Poirier. Daniel Hooker, for the improvements he's made, Daniel Hooker isn't exactly the most technical, defensively sound or offensively savvy fight striker you've seen. At least not a striker I've seen. Maybe maybe it's the other people. But to me, he's not great. And he had moments against um, – he had moments where people thought he was going to finish Poirier. Conor McGregor basically came out not – striking MMA basically came out purely boxing and by Dustin Poirier's own words, Conor McGregor had him in trouble early in that fight. In fact, until those leg kicks took Conor McGregor out of it, most people watching the fight felt Conor was in complete control with his strikes, with his boxing. So it's not that Dustin's really untouchable. He's, he's not a guy who's mess- he's hard to hit the way you want to, maybe with kill shots, maybe to put numerous combinations on him, but he's not hard to get to if you're aggressive 
you have some attributes like either you got a chin so you're willing to walk right in and take his fire or you've got some length and some speed charles Oliveira has some length and speed and as far as their striking dustin poirier once again i mean i don't i don't know that he's been much of a body kicker i mean we obviously there's a cap kicks but he's never been like a legendary leg kicker or body kicker or head kicker he's not particularly great with elbows um if i look at he's faced a better caliber of opponent and he's been able to impose his will and impose his skills on a better caliber opponent. But as far as the guy who's shown a little bit more width in his striking, um, Oliveira has probably shown a little bit more balance in his striking. And Oliveira will still be the faster. I don't know that he's a harder hitting, but he's more explosive. He's the longer guy. He's faster and he throws a little bit more variety. So I think the variety and the athleticism can balance out the striking. Dustin is a much better, better boxer. I don't know that overall he's a better striker whether it's offensively or defensively. Um, as far as the grappling, um, Dustin's never really out-grappled anybody of any any note, or never he's never finished a fight with any grappling where you said, wow, Dustin Poirier has really crossed the line. I mean, who, who's he just dominated on the ground and finished where you're just like, wow, Dustin's a different caliber of opponent. He, he's never done that, even against guys who were solid guys like um, Jim Miller. He didn't just have his way with him. Against Conor McGregor, we can say he didn't. He wasn't just able to control Conor and get him in position and finish him. Even though everybody says Conor's submissions are so suspect, Dustin never was really close to finishing him. And when he was put on his back and under duress against Khabib, he wasn't able to survive either. Now Khabib is more of a physical presence as far as his strength and his his uh, durability and and the pressure he applies. But as far as the versatility and creativity of the grappling, I'd say Oliveira has that over Khabib. He just doesn't have the physicality necessary. So based on what they've shown, Dustin's never shown the offensive, defensive, or counter skills um, of a Charles Oliveira. I, I can't really say his wrestling is particularly standout either because against the best guys, he, he's never been much of a dominant wrestler at all. He's gotten takedowns. He's controlled people. But when has he really just out-wrestled somebody and got into a position where he could finish them dynamically like that? He didn't do it against Dan Hooker. And Dan Hooker's not a spectacular type person. Against Khabib, he couldn't do anything offensively. He couldn't do anything defensively. And even against Conor McGregor, once again, he landed some ground and pound. But he, once again, he didn't finish him, for one. And two, he wasn't completely always able to control him. People tell me he grabbed, he grabbed the gloves and all the stuff. People cheat in fights all the time. That happens all the time. So I, I, can't, I can't dismiss the fact that he was only able to do so much work against guys who are known to be lacking in that, that submission area. Whereas Charles Oliveira has making, he's taken great strides defensively, his positioning, using his length correctly, and setting up his strikes instead of using his athleticism. So the gap in striking to me isn't nearly as wide as the gap in wrestling or grappling. And that's just based off who they finished, how they finished them, and how often they've been able to exploit holes in that area. Dustin Poirier hasn't had 11 years worth of guys avoiding the ground or submitting guys or controlling guys on the ground like that. He's had most of his success on the feet. Oliveira's had some success on the feet, but as he's gotten more schooled, more disciplined, and more technical, you've seen a more refined Oliveira. You've seen him take two, three, four steps forward. I don't know that I've seen two, three, four steps forward as far as Poirier in regards to his wrestling or his grappling. It's interesting that you put it that way because I'm just looking at his record here and I'm trying to figure out who was the best jujitsu player he's beaten. Maybe wrestler, a combination of the two. And maybe you say Jonathan Brookings. 
back at um, back in 2012, maybe a Pablo Garza back in 2011, um, Diego Brandao. I mean, he finished all three of those guys. He submitted to and, and knocked out Brandao. But outside of that, as he moved up, he hasn't faced anybody who is known to, hey, I'm going to take you down and I'm going to dominate you, except for Khabib, who did just that. So that is an interesting. He, has, he hasn't imposed his will on people either. I mean, how many submissions has he had over even top-ranked guys, whether they're jujitsu jiu- guys or not? On these not, mainstream I mean, he has Anthony Pettis is the last submission, and that was back in 2017. Outside of that, <laughs> he has not submitted. It, it was five years before that that he uh, submitted someone. Anyone else he finished has was by TKO. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he can't. He doesn't have a certain aspect of it, but as far as like Oliveira could be solid defensively, offensively, or on the counter, or on the feet. Same thing with the wrestling and the grappling. As far as I know, Dustin defensively, or maybe countering takedowns, maybe. Uh, as far as wrestling and grappling goes, I don't know that he's great off his back. I don't know that he's great even when he's on top. As far as actually finishing people, and that thread of finishing, whether it's from the top or from the bottom. Allows you to allows you to navigate some ground and pound. Allows you to get control in certain position. Might allow you to get some extra strikes in because the guy doesn't want to put out an arm to defend and get armbarred or get choked or something. So I, I just feel like Dustin has really he's shown one or two real ways of winning striking battles. He's won he's won, won most of his fights in one certain way. Oliveira's shown a lot of width. He's submitted people. He's ground and pounded people. He's knocked him out on the feet. He's knocked him out with the hands. He's need him. It's like he's done a combination of things. He's shown more variety. Now he hasn't shown it against the same caliber, but he has shown more variety and more depth of skill than Dustin Poirier. Dustin Poirier's got like one to three things he does, and he's done it at an extremely high level. But it's still only one to three things. So what's interesting is that you know, I'm looking at Alvarez's rundown now, his resume. And he's defeated mostly grapplers, especially during this run now. Um, Michael Chandler, Tony Ferguson, Kevin Lee, Nick Lentz, David Tamer, Jim Miller, Christos Giannos, Clay Guida during this current run could all be considered mostly grappling first fighters. Jared Gordon yes. is probably the best striker out of that group or like the most known striking first fighter out of that group. And he finished him as well, too. So it's an interesting dynamic because you, when you look at the guys who he's fought that are striking first, Paul Felder, Ricardo Lamas, Anthony Pettis, Max Holloway, he's been beaten by all of them. Um, so I think Swanson as well, Donald Cerrone, well, he lost to Jim Miller via knee bar. But if you look at that, it, it, it's an interesting play on how these two guys have been booked leading up to this fight. Yeah, I, it was my concern for Oliveira when he fought. I thought he was favored over Chandler. But once again, Oliveira had been beating guys where he could show striking growth because those guys aren't natural strikers. They're guys who get by volume or aggression, or they're guys who are just now learning the finer points of striking, so he's two, three steps ahead of them. But he was beating guys who weren't really top-tier fighters on his way way to, to the belt. Once again... Dustin Poirier, I still believe Conor McGregor, even if he's declined, is still like a top seven-ish, top ten-ish type lightweight. Um, you see he fought Khabib. Khabib was the number one guy. He beat Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje's been pretty much top five since he's been there. You know, he, he's been beating guys who are higher ranked and more accomplished. When he beat Dan, Daniel Hooker, Daniel Hooker was a top five, top seven-ish guy. So he's been beating guys in the upper echelon of the weight class, whereas Charles Oliveira has gotten by by through more of a quantity of wins instead of high quality of wins. So it's like, 
once again, as I said earlier, Oliveira's, the striking isn't as wide between them, but some of the openings and opportunities Oliveira's been used to just won't be there because he's not facing a high-level grappler who's learned, how to, who's learned how to strike. He's facing a guy who's one of the more seasoned, deliberate, and technical, at least boxers, in mixed martial arts. So there's a lot of those combinations he throws that he just lands and he can slip off punches and roll and get his jab going. It won't be as easy against Dustin Borea, even with the physical advantages he has of length and reach and the physical advantages he has in athleticism. He's going to be facing a guy who just won't be as available and a guy who won't be as easily dissuaded eating one or two big shots. So let's cut right to the chase when it comes to this fight here. Who do you see winning and how? And I, it's really hard for me because I haven't seen Dustin against anybody except for Connor. And Connor is as good as he has he has been, has become kind of plateaued technically. There's certain things you don't have to worry about, Connor. You worry about the left hand, you worry about the front kick, the spin kicks, you worry about the pressure, but you don't have to worry about wrestling. You don't worry about takedowns, you don't have to really worry about submissions. Like there's a it's there's been a whole side of mixed martial arts he hasn't even had to consider for about a, about a year's time frame. Even fighting Daniel Hooker, Daniel Hooker's not going to out-wrestle you and submit you. He hasn't really had to deal with any threats outside of that. And I'm not saying that he hasn't trained for it, he's not prepared for it, but if I have to go by who's seen to grow the most as a fighter and shown the most depth and width of skill, I, I probably would favor Oliveira. Um, I know he's still, I still don't think he's as durable as he's made out to be. What I do think is he's gotten a little bit better with his defense. And I think the range of strikes he has and the fact that even though I don't think Poirier is afraid to go to ground with him, Poirier is not going to be serving himself up for any takedowns um, due to how dynamic Oliveira is and how technical he is. I, I think Oliveira just has enough weapons and enough approaches where he can overwhelm Poirier. Can Poirier still walk him down, break him down to the body line, counters, maybe even wrestle him to a bit, clinch him up, beat him up? Yeah, he can still do that. But I have to expect that's how most people have been attacking Oliveira the, the majority of his career because they have felt he had he can't take punishment, he can't come back from punishment. With the defensive awareness he has on the ground now and on the feet, I feel like even if Poirier rocks him, I think Poirier's got to be careful because you don't want to fall him to the ground. You could easily get a sub- submitted there. So you'll give him a couple times to get back to his feet. And on the feet, he's not nearly as much of a defensive uh, liability as he used to be. In fact, he's pretty solid defensively. And he's got enough counters, whether it's elbows, knees, punches, or kicks, where he could, I feel he could exploit um, Dustin. I feel the longer the fight goes, the more it favors Dustin. Dustin's more proven over five rounds, but Dustin still has been a slow starter. And if for some reason he comes out fast, I'm not sure if he can maintain that pace as far as maintaining it and still being defensively accountable and offensively responsible. So I'm probably going to say Oliveira. Um, I still think his chin's an issue. I think in a tough grinding fight, his cardio is an issue. But if he's truly the threat he seems to be in all ranges, it's going to be very hard for Dustin to truly, truly press him and truly, truly grind on him. Because every time you do that, that opens up an opportunity for him to get a takedown, grab a limb, and try to drag you down. And he doesn't need much. The the margin for error with the guy with that kind of length and athleticism is very little. But I'm going to say that it's going to be – Oliveira. I think he's just on a roll right now. I think he's got a very good awareness of um, his skill set. And I don't think I haven't seen enough from Dustin recently that tells me he's he's got he's gonna win this fight. Like I said, it goes later. We have another conversation. But um, right now I'll say that uh, Oliveira's got it on there. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't I keep going back and forth about this because I look at I I'm concerned right now if Dustin Poirier hurts Oliver early in the fight. I think he he has a fight IQ to get the finish there. I don't think he'll make the same type of mistakes that um, Chandler made, which allowed Oliver to get his wits to him and, and get back up and get out of the round and, and be able to finish him the next time out. I think um, Dustin has the ability to to be smart in those positions. We've seen it before from him, um, and it's weird, man. Even still, even still with this current run that Oliver has been on, I still wonder about the man we've seen break in the past. We've seen multiple instances where he was doing well in the fight and he breaks for some reason or he gets put under pressure and he doesn't uh, execute. We have, we've seen that much less now and we've seen situations where he's been able to overcome that. But sometimes I just wonder against a fighter of Dustin's ability and, and of Dustin's stature, will that, which version of Charles Oliveira will we get on Saturday? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, durability, I still got questions. Cardio, I still have questions. It's just he seems to be a little bit more measured in what he's doing. He used to just get countered easily. He used to just get backed up easily. He used to just not have much of a setup or structure to his striking. It was just that he's long and athletic and aggressive. But now I see more of a deliberate, a li- little bit more patience, a little bit more deliberation, and a little bit more balance in what he's doing. And, and that, that's what I'm basically hanging my hat on. I don't think that he's beating the caliber of guys that just Dustin Poirier is beating. But if by the same regards, Dustin Poirier is beating a high caliber guy. He's also been through a lot of high caliber wars where he's taken as good as he's given. So while you could, we could say that just maybe this peak of Oliveira isn't real, you have to wonder if this extended peak of Poirier on this run he's been on is real as well. At what point do all those wars catch up? It's not even a matter of IQ. It's what happens when he's a half, if he's a half second slow. And and I still go back to the fact that if he gets taken down, there's any believe, reason to believe that he can tie Oliveira up, much less submit him, much less counter him at all. And if he takes Oliveira down or knocks him down and finishes him, even then, even if he's in a position of strength, Oliveira's a 50-50 threat from the bottom. He's a 50-50 threat from the top. He's a 50-50 threat in scrambles and on the feet. At worst, he's a, it's a 50-50 fight call, difference being Poirier's power and his durability. But as far as what they've shown recently, I still think there's there's aspects of where you can attack Poirier and you can exploit the somewhat one-dimensional aspect of his striking. Good stuff there, sir. That's a good breakdown. Let's, um, let's move to the second fight, second title fight. Amanda Nunez versus Juliana Pena. And Nunez, is this is her first defense of the Bantamweight title in two years. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. So, this is our first title defense of the bantamweight belt in two years. She's been steamrolling everybody. Juliana Pena is two and two in her last four, and she, and many people see that she kind of talked her way into this fight. She's been someone that has been very good about talking herself in the situation since her time on the Ultimate Fighter, and now she's in that position for a title fight here. And, and a lot of the uh, analysis I'm seeing heading into this fight is that for Pena to win, this has to be a ground-based battle where she can use her strengths and perhaps wear Nunez out across 25 minutes. A, do you see that happening? And B, what if not there, what are her best chances of winning? I don't think it has necessarily to be a ground battle. I just think it needs to be a pitched battle. 
um, everybody keeps telling me that Amanda Nunes, and I've talked, I've, I know people in Amanda Nunes' camp, and I've had this argument with them before. They keep telling me her cardio is better, her cardio is better. I'm like, yeah, her cardio at 45 is fine when she fought Spencer, but the reason her cardio looks so good at Bantamweight is because she's finished everybody so quickly. Misha Tate got finished quickly. Ronda Rousey got finished quickly. Um, who else? Holly Holm got finished quickly. She's, she keeps finishing people quickly. When she's been forced to fight past a certain round and a certain intensity, she has not looked well-conditioned. She has not looked dynamic. When she fought Valentina the first time, she rocked her, almost finished her, and basically for the rest of the fight, it was 50-50. At the end of the fight, she was still hanging on for dear life as Valentina was trying to finish. Against Durandamy, she came out to a big lead, had Durandamy hurt, and then the second second half, second uh, round, she had nothing left. Durandamy beat her from pillar to post. And at one point, even though Amanda's a black belt and she's untouchable and nobody can beat her, there were people in the crowd and on Twitter who were actually concerned that Amanda Nunes was going to get finished by a triangle by Jermaine Durandamy. And that's because Amanda gassed. Amanda, when she isn't able to finish dynamically and quickly, is not the same fighter. It's why she lost against Kat Zingano. It's why she struggled against Valentina Shevchenko. It's why she struggled against Jermaine Demandamy. And in fact, Holly Holm had the same game plan. When she fought Holly Holm, she kept taking Holly Holm down because she knows she can't chase Holly Holm all over the cage for five rounds in a high-paced fight. She can't do that. She'll, she'll burn out. She won't have enough energy, and Holly Holm just does not get tired. So she kept taking her down, and Holly Holm knew she was trying to slow down the fight. And imposed her goal. So Holly Holm got back, back up. She took her down and got right back up. Only difference is she caught her in transition and finished her. But Holly Holm was trying to push the pace. That's all Julian Pagan is going to do. She's going to try to push a pace with Amanda Nunes. Because once Amanda get, if Amanda sells out to finish or Amanda has to fight at pace, she's not the same fighter. She hasn't fought in this weight class in two years. She's been living it up. She's taking time off, had COVID, fighting at 145 twice. Now she's got to drop 10 pounds down. Does she have a better skill set than Juliana? Much better skill set. Does she have a much better resume? Much better resume. Much better athleticism? Much better athleticism. But I believe that Juliana Pena, and I wrote this, I wrote an article that I put on MMA rating, seven things you need to know about Pena versus Nunes. I believe that Juliana Pena thinks that at 35, Nunes is compromised. And she believes maybe she does have a better skill set than me, but the fact of the matter is I'm not – I can't be embarrassed anymore than I have been being submitted by Valentina and Durandamy. So I have all the freedom to push a pace. And Juliana Pena is going to fight you in every rank. There's no safety zone against Juliana Pena. She'll grapple with you. She'll strike with you. She'll clinch with you. She'll scramble with you. So there's no place where you can go where she's going to allow the fight to slow down. So if Amanda cannot get a quick finish or put a hellacious beating on her, and pretty much if she does not finish, we know she, even if she puts a beating on her. Second round, Amanda's going to be tired. Juliana Pena will not. And, if, and when Amanda gets tired, that power goes away, that accuracy goes away, that footwork goes away, those takedowns go away, the submission skills, all that goes away. We saw it when Jermaine Durandamy was able to hold her down on the ground and beat the hell out of her. Jermaine Durandamy, who's, who's never been able to hold position on anybody. Jermaine Durandamy, who's ne never met a takedown, she could defend, was, getting, was defending takedowns, punishing Nunes, getting on top of Nunes, punishing Nunes, Getting her in submissions, it was ridiculous. It was all because Amanda was tired. So if Amanda does not finish this fight in the first round, she's got a problem. If she does not finish this fight in the first round, she's got a problem because Pena is not going to give her a chance to rest, and Pena is not going to back off. 
the good that's the, that's the bad news and the good news because the good news is Penny is not going to back off. Penny is not going to give her a chance to rest. So Penny's going to give you every chance to land a KO shot, every chance to find a submission. But if you don't find that submission and you don't find that KO shot, Juliana Pena is going to wear you out. If, the, if this fight goes past a round and a half, this might end up looking like Cats and Ghana versus Amanda Nunes all over again. Interesting that, man, because that would be, I think that would be two upsets if both of your predictions come in. Because I do believe that Nunez and Poirier are the favorites heading into this fight. If yeah. Nunez was to lose on Saturday, do let me ask, kind of rephrase that. Win or lose, do you think this is the last time we see her in the cage? Because I feel like every time she steps into the cage, we're getting nearer and nearer to her calling it. Win, lose, or draw. So win or lose, do you think she hangs it up after Saturday? I think she's got to be close because, I mean, once again, there's no money fights out her. As much as Amanda Nunes has complained about the opportunities the UFC's got her, like, you know, they don't push me, yada, yada, yada. They don't make these articles. They don't make these meetings. First of all, you know my position. That's your management's job. Stop asking your promoter to do – yeah, they can promote you as a fighter. Your management's supposed to get you opportunities. The promoter got her the biggest fights in women's MMA. In a row, Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey, Cyborg, Holly Holm, the four biggest names in women's MMA, you got them all one after the other, after the other, after the other, and you have the nerve to blame the promoter for why you're not a big star? <laughs> you're nuts. You were on a million, a million, a million, a pay-per-view that sold over a million copies, over a million pay-per-views, and you still didn't break. That is not the UFC's fault. You fought the four most popular fighters in the history of women's mixed martial arts, and you're still not popular. I'm sorry. It, it, it's just not meant for you. you. You got every chance. Sorry. You're not coming to me that. But there's no more paydays. She's not going to get cyborg again. That's a huge payday. Ronda Rousey's gone. That's a huge payday. Misha Tate is out of the t- running for the meanwhile. That's a huge payday. Holly Holm, as far as she's not a huge payday, but she's bigger than the other paydays she gets defending her featherweight title or fighting anybody else at Bantamweight. There are no more paydays. All the paydays now are going to be generated by Amanda Nunes' celebrity and Amanda Nunes' ability to draw, which is slim to none. So I can see her deciding, you know what, this isn't worth it, especially if it's a tough fight. If she loses the fight, I'm not sure if she goes out on loss. She might. But if she wins the fight and it's a real tough fight, I can see her being like, you know what, let me just leave while the getting good. Because they don't have a featherweight. They don't have featherweights in the featherweight division. She's asking them to bring them in. I don't think the UFC is going to do it. And at Bantamweight, if she meets Juliana Pena, who else is there for her to fight? Holly Holm again? Captain Ladd? Kevin Zara? I actually got a good response to that. I'm not going to fall into the conversation about her being a draw or not. Who's, who's at fault for that? But let me ask you this. Does she have a space where she can move into doing some celebrity boxing matches and get some big paydays there? Oh, uh, I can't imagine so because as much as, as much as the guys do it, I have not seen one woman really sign up for celebrity boxing. Who's she going to box? Like, she'd have to go into real boxing. She could make money fighting Clarissa Shields. She'd go into women's boxing, train for about six months to a year, and given the, she, the level of athlete she is, and women's boxing is pretty shaky, there's really only, like, 15 really good boxers, and they're all in multiple divisions. She could probably win a title. She could probably get in a position to, to get a big money fight. But celebrity boxing, who's going to step in and fight her? Who's a celebrity? Who's going to fight her? Gail Godot? 
not not the celebrity fight. I'm talking more like the Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley type of space. Are there any like I mean, but don't outside of Clarissa Shields? I mean, there I mean, are like, other other names for yeah. Her, I mean, they, they would make it worth her while. That's a, that's the problem. I guess she could box Holly Holm if Holly Holm agreed to it. I guess she could box Clarissa Shields. Maybe that's two people. Maybe she could box Cyborg in a rematch. Maybe maybe that, I guess. But outside of that, who else? Kayla Harrison's not boxing her. There's no need for her to do that. Is she anywhere near around the same size as the Toronto sisters, or are they too small? Oh, no, no. They're way smaller than that. No, no, no. That's not happening. That's not happening. She has a hard time making 35. She ain't fighting the Toronto sisters. Okay, so let me ask you this then. The final question before we move on to the next uh, for the rest of the card here. We'll take that back. They may be willing to fight her. I just don't know what it does for Amanda Menounes because if she gets challenged or pushed, even if they lose, I mean, it, it's still a huge payday. And if she loses, a lot of that cachet that's being unstoppable and all stuff that goes away. So I, I don't think she would do it. It'd have to be a, a certain paycheck. Well, I guess Jake Paul has enough money. I, you know what? That's fair enough. That that's that's a viable option. That could happen. I don't think it ever does, but it could happen. So let me ask you this last question, then and we'll, we'll move on. So let's say Juliana Pena does win. Looking at the bantamweight division, who moves up, or who is like the next woman up to face her and challenge her, or do they go? Do they finally allow Valentina to move back up? Where do we see that division going next if Amanda Nunez is no longer at the top? Uh, probably Ketlin Vera, maybe. I mean, they have a lot of options. Uh, Ketlin Vera, Holly Holm would be interesting. Misha Tate would be interesting. She'd probably have to get a win. Uh, I could see them saying, you know what, if, if Nunes doesn't want a rematch, they could just pull Valentina up there because that'd be a fight of her trying to come back to Bantamweight to finish the job she started. And it'd be a chance for Juliana Pena to, uh, you know, rewrite history and beat Valentina this time because she can be like, Nunez beat you twice. I defeated Nunez. If you want to be the best pound for pound, you got to come see me. There you go. Sell the fight perfectly. Not, once again, that's not going to be there. I mean, there's no big money makers in Bantamweight right now. So um, the best thing about it is the whole division opens back up because Julian Pena has won as much as she's lost. So instantly you have Jermaine Durandamy who could be like, hey, I want a shot now. Valentina Shevchenko could move up. Misha Tate, Holly Hope, you got a lot more interest because even if she wins, she would be considered the most vulnerable champion in the history of mixed martial arts because of how she's lost to Valentina and lost to Durandamy. People would consider her um, a somewhat flawed and very vulnerable fighter. A lot of, I think a lot of people, more people would be speaking up to challenge her than they did Amanda Nunes because Nunes will put you on a highlight reel. Pena might beat the hell out of you, but she's not going to really embarrass you like that. That's not the kind of fighter she is. Good stuff there, sir. Let's move on and let's talk about the rest of UFC 269 because there's a lot to really look at on this card and that's worth talking about. And we're going to hit some of these pieces quick. Um, I want to talk with uh, talk about Jeff Neal versus Santiago Ponzinibbio. This is the welterweight fight pitting number 14 Ponzinibbio against number 12 Neal. I feel like this is a big fight for both men. Because the welterweight division is really looking for someone to step up into a space that can that can help clear out some of these guys that have been around for a little while. That's why you see guys like Hazma getting such a big push, Sean Brady getting such a big push. Like that's why you see some of that coming on down the um, down the pipe here. Who wins this fight here, and and who needs to win more? Um, 
I don't know. I guess maybe Neil. Neil was considered hot, hot shit coming in, and two losses when he finally got to step up fights. He lost them, and he lost them pretty badly. So I, I think he needs to regain some of that momentum because people are thinking as him as a fringe contender, and now people are thinking he's been exposed. Like he already hit his cap fighting those around those top 15 to 13 ranked people, and he's incapable of doing more because he was against those guys. He he was. He got the fight he wanted against Wonder Boy, and he got totally dismantled. His speed, his explosiveness, his power, his durability wasn't a factor in it, and it showed that he was lacking as far as the skill and conceptual understanding to um, attack or really punish Wonder Boy, who we've seen punished or attacked by other guys. So it's not like we haven't seen it done, and Neil couldn't get anything done against him. And then his other loss. So I think Neil really needs it. Um, Fonzo Nibio... I really, I really don't think he's lost as much cash as people think. It, a lot of it was put to his inactivity as to reasons why he struggled or, or hasn't been much of a factor. With Neil, he was active and he was hot. And the minute they raised the bar as far as his competition, he was no longer, he didn't look as dynamic or as impressive or as technical as he did before. So his, his loss of momentum was based on him not being good enough. And a lot of Ponzinibbio's loss of momentum was, a lot of people attributed to his lack of his inactivity, his health issues. So I think there's a little bit more of an out for Ponzinibbio. There hasn't been any out for Neil. He's just been outfought in um, pretty hand and defeated pretty handily. I mean, those guys made it look fairly easy against a guy who was being considered a, a, a potential contender. Good stuff. I just wanted to hit that fight quickly. There's plenty of others to talk about. Kai Kara-France and Cody Garbrandt. This is a big fight for Cody here because he's trying to remind people that he uh, should be considered amongst the title challengers wherever he fights. And this is looks and this is a part of his move down to 125. And he's facing off against number six uh, and, and Kara-France here. How do you think this fight goes for Cody? Do we see a guy who is very depleted and very in a shell of himself coming down to 125, or do we see him in a rejuvenated sense and his power still translate? I have no idea, to be honest. I have no idea what to expect from Cody Garbrandt anymore. Uh, he's a he he even now is still probably close to world class talent. When he came in, he's probably elite world class talent. And he somehow managed to just kind of squander it with the combination of bad coaching, um, not being moved correctly by his team, and um, seemingly abandoning some of the tools that made him as dynamic as he is. Um, if he's at weight, he's, he's always a factor. I mean, he his power and his hand speed was something that was tremendous at, at a previous weight, and I think he could have knocked out 45 guys. But when you move down, you find out that – the blazing hand speed at this weight class is now only, you know, very good hand speed at another. I remember when Frankie Edgar used to just move around the cage and guys couldn't stay with him. When he went to bat, when he went to featherweight, that wasn't as big an issue. And when he went to bantamweight, guys were staying with him and knocking him down left and right. Jose Aldo, excuse me, used to be quick off the trigger. Nobody could touch him as he moved down in weight. That even though he's older, that quickness, that gap in quickness, no longer exists. So Cody Garbrandt, I would expect, he's super fast still, but I don't think he's going to have a gap in speed that he's used to. I think his power, if he holds up and he made it in a healthy manner, should still hold up. But 
he's used to being able to get away with certain things and throw certain shots and get away from certain things because of his athleticism and his timing. When you move down a weight class and you're facing good athletes, well-conditioned athletes, those those windows close a little bit more. You don't have as much of a margin for error. So that might be an issue with him, especially given the fact that he's never taken the best shot and he's never, and recently he hasn't been great defensively. But if he can if he can land, he attacks the body, he sets up his strikes pretty well, and he can, he can put two or three strikes on somebody. I think anybody in the weight class he can knock out. Um, I assume he's going for a highly ranked guy because he does not want to be in that weight class long. I think he wants to maybe get one ranked fight, maybe two, and then get a title fight. I think his, his idea is to get momentum back, get a title fight that will give him leverage to maybe jump back up and get a title fight at 135. Um, I'm assuming he's going to be fresh and ready for it. He's been talking about it for years, but um, I have no idea what Cody Garbrandt at 125 looks like. I have no idea that if TJ Dillashaw is any sort of hint of what he's going to look like, then it's going to be a long, ugly night for him. But um, I, I expect him to look good at least. I, I expect him to look good because, like I said, he's been talking about this for two years, and he has to know he's, he's one or two losses from being basically a non-factor in any division anymore. This is a desperate move by him. And I, I hope he fights in a very patient and deliberate manner, but with some desperate energy because he he needs to win. Regardless of against the number six guy, he can't afford a loss, much less a knockout loss at this stage in his career. I want to touch on Kai um, Kara France really quickly because I feel like he is a guy who, even ranked at number six, still flies under the radar. What would this big win do for him? It'd be big because it's a name. So, and the UFC likes names, especially if you can knock them out. That'll propel them forward because Cody Garbrandt is still a name. A lot of eyes are going to be on them because Cody Garbrandt's making his first venture into this weight class. I think the reason Kai has never really broken through is because it's kind of, he's not as bad as what happened to Angela Hill, but it's been somewhat of that where he's won fights, the right fights, or maybe he's never won enough fights against the right people to break through. He's always put on a good performance and maybe a so-so performance and then got to a certain level and it's been a loss. He's never been able to build the momentum that comes with a four or five, six, five win streak or a dynamic four or five, six win streak. He's very skilled. He has a uh, camp. He, he seems to be uh, listened to his camp. His camp is very strategic. They have a very good understanding of fight, the flow of fighting, the structure of fighting and how to break down opposition. I don't know that Kai has enough athletic or just fighting talent in and of himself, because as it, as it's shown against in every camp, you can have a good camp, you can scheme guys, but there's a certain part where scheming doesn't make up for talent or some or physical ability that somebody has. It's why John Jones is able to do things that uh, other fighters in Jackson Wink weren't able to. It's why Jose Aldo's been able to be more consistent than other guys over at a really good camp could do. And it's the same reason why City Kickboxing has Volkanovski, who's on a streak, Adesanya, who's on a streak except for one loss, and the other guys have been hit or miss, win two, lose two, win three, lose two, because those guys don't have the innate all-time great talent, all-time great durability, all-time great athleticism that allows them to make certain mistakes and navigate past them. So I don't know that Kai is talented. In fact, I know he's not as talented as Garbrandt, but I do know he's been better coached over the length of his career, and he seems to be a little bit more durable. And obviously, he's 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 been in the weight class a little bit longer, so that gives him a lot of instant advantages. Once again, a win over Garbrandt, who hasn't had a great record recently, doesn't mean much fighting-wise. 
But the fact that he has cachet and so many people are going to be focused on this card and so many people are going to be focused on this fight will give him a boost in the rankings and will give him an argument to demand a top three to two to four guy in the division and hopefully get a title fight next. Stuff there, sir. Um, was, like I said, there's a lot of talk about here. Is the last fight, uh, Dominic Cruz is coming back to face Pedro Munoz. And I feel like Pedro Munoz has been put in a position to be the guy who sees where these older names are. And not saying that he's a young name, he's 35 himself, but he was put in the same situation with Frankie Edgar as well. Same thing with John Dotson a while back and Jimmy Rivera before that. So now he's facing, um, and 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 um, Jose Aldo as well, too. So now he's facing Dominic Cruz, and Cruz is coming off of another long layoff, which is interesting the way people talk about how the layoffs have, like, offset the injury just because he's been out so long and his body hasn't taken the same amount of damage as some other fighters. But this is a big fight here for both men. How do you see this playing out? And what does it mean for the winner who is someone of, should be considered an elder statesman of this weight division? If Cruz wins, it puts him right back in the talks for a potential title fight. Um, that's been his M.O. He's been out for a long period of time, but then he comes back and gets a big win. And that's what's allowed him to stay in the public conscience and allowed him to, to kind of navigate around his inactivity. I mean, he's still got a title fight against Cejudo. Why? Because he's been so impressive in other showings. Same thing when he got Dillashaw, because his previous fight before he got injured, he was so impressive. Same fight, reason he got a highly ranked guy before that because he'd been so impressive with his other fight. Um, the problem with Cruz is the benefit of Cruz being injured is as the sport transitioned and he had fighters who could exploit him, he got to navigate around those guys because he just got to watch them from the cage side, make money, build a career, increase his IQ, but not have his legend be dinged by guys who had skill sets and approaches and physical tools that could exploit the holes in his game. That's that was a good side. He never he never had I mean if he stayed active right now he'd probably have to face something like a Jose Aldo. I mean Aldo's whole leg kicking and boxing is much better than Dominic Cruz's. That's the worst matchup for him possible. But he's able to get big wins and because guys don't get to see can only watch film, they can't really they haven't really fought him and he's got to watch them over and over. He has a better understanding of what they do and how they do it than they have an understanding of what he does and how he does it. So he's allowed him. He's allowed to maintain his rank because he hasn't had to. He hasn't had to consistently compete with the better guys who, ultimately, stylistically, are problems for him. The bad part is, even though he hasn't taken punishment, his body still. His body has been on rest and recovery, and it's still not working at top levels. I mean, he fought Cejudo, and that was like what two years ago, year and a half ago, two years ago. So, I mean, obviously his body isn't what it was, and with style he uses, that requires his timing, his footwork, his balance, his, his pain to be managed at a very high level, and I don't know that it's at that level before. He wasn't a great athlete in the first place. He can't possibly be nearly as great as he is before then. And then you put into the factor that his style has kind of been figured out. Dillashaw figured it out late in their fight. Cejudo figured it out. In his fight, and now you got Pedro Munoz, who's a guy who's got the power and physicality in the approach to kind of cause him a certain amount of problems. Um, if Pedro wins this fight, once again, it's a name fight. It's not great based off his record because he got dismantled by Cejudo, but still, he's considered one of the better guys. It's a good name win. 
It puts him in the talks back to being a fringe contender for the title. But a win for Dominic Cruz is a better win. It's better for Cruz and a win for Munoz is better for him because Cruz will instantly be put back in the title talks because of the way he talks, because he's in the forefront. He's always in front of the camera. I think this would be his second fight in a row he would win. So he'd have a legitimate argument to start demanding maybe a TJ Dillashaw, maybe a Jose Aldo, or maybe he could skip both of them and get the winner of Jan versus uh, Sterling. But um, it, it's a pick and fight just because Pedro has an instance where he gets outworked and he won't do enough. And even though Cruz is not a real technician on the feet, nor is he a dynamic wrestler, he is a very smart fighter and he is a guy who stays busy, whether it's dancing around the cage, transitioning to takedowns, or throwing oddly timed counters and leads. He's a guy who stays busy. So if Pedro can't match his volume and activity, he's just going to get out of work. He might not get hurt. He might not get beat up, but he will get out of work and out hustled. And I think that's very likely to happen unless Cruz Bodies fails him again. If it doesn't, he, he should be able to outwork Pedro to a uh, decision win. Yeah, I can see um, Dominic Cruz getting the victory here. And I'm not sure what that does for him long term. I want to see... Cruz versus Aldo in some shape or form, we got to get that fight. Uh, and I think if he picks up a win here, we could be that much closer, which would do, I mean, I would I would watch that five-round affair on like a Saturday night on a non-pay-per-view event. Cruz versus Aldo as well, but so with Dillashaw versus Cruz, I mean, they still hate each other. I mean, yeah, we've seen that before, though. We've seen that but twice, it, right? But that, but that one, once, but that's why it sells. True, true, true. But I would want to see Aldo Cruz more. Um, and I think that that's, that's a closer fight to make. Um, what else are you looking forward to on this card? I mean, we got Miranda Maverick fighting. Um, we have a bunch of other important fights as well, too. I mean, we have Ryan Hall's coming back. Eric Anders is there. Um, Ty Tuavasa is back as well, too. J- Josh Emmett, Dan Ige. There's a lot to look at on this card. So what are you really looking at the most? I, I'm interested to see. I know she's not very popular. I know she's been on a rush street, but uh, Jillian Robinson, I'm really interested to see if she's figured anything out. She was considered a prospect, and I really think she had some of the best talent in the division, but she has been unable to progress in her striking and putting her striking and wrestling together. And she's had some very bad losses, and I have to think she's close to being cut by the UFC because of her lack of progression and the fact that they've set her up to take the next step multiple times and she has never been able to turn the corner on that so i'm very interested to see how that goes because she was considered one of the future people in the division and she's almost an afterthought now so in most of these other fights it's guys who've been who are established who are going to have impact in the division we have somebody who was thought to be close to running the division as far as their potential and who started off that way and now is you know maybe a fight or two from being cut from the ufc they're both fighting for their jobs. Her and yeah. um, uh, Priscilla Keshawea, uh, I think they're both fighting for their jobs on Saturday. Um, but this is a good card. Like This is the type of, of fight card that fans should want to sit down and watch from start to finish. Um, and there isn't really anything to, to pick apart from this, from this um, showcase. So I'm, I'm glad that we're getting this at the end of the year. I think this is a good way for the UFC to go about closing out um, 2021. Let's switch gears because we have a lot of action to talk about from this past weekend. We have Sergio Pettis picking up a big win over Kyoji Horiguchi. So he was losing every just about every exchange of this fight into the fourth round where he landed that spinning back fist that knocked uh, Horiguchi out clean. 
what does this uh, what does this fight say for both men? Does that um, outcome for Horiguchi? Does that the fact that he was winning so so handily before he was finished? Does that mean he should get an immediate rematch, or are we looking at a situation where if they were to fight again, Pettis has will be able to figure it out and get the victory that second time? We'll get the victory again. Well, they're supposed to have the Grand Prix, so I don't think they'll have an immediate rematch. Yeah, we're so, going to be talking about the Grand Prix in a second as well, too. But if that wasn't there, would you would you book a um, immediate rematch? I mean, it's the biggest fight to make. There's no other fight that's really going to sell as nearly as well as the fight between Pettis and Horiguchi just because of the way it finished, the drama behind it. Now people want to know, can Pettis pull the magic out again or, or did Pettis figure something out? Or will Horiguchi just go back and outclass um, Pettis once more? Um I know Horiguchi's team isn't terribly worried about it. They feel like he made a mistake, and they honestly feel like um, Pettis just got lucky, to be quite honest. They're like, there wasn't an exchange he won. He couldn't stop the takedowns, really. He couldn't dictate where the fight took place. He couldn't really hurt him. He couldn't really back him off. He couldn't really get away with him. I mean, outside of that one, essentially that one strike, Pettis didn't do anything of note to win a minute of that round. So I don't know how Horiguchi would not have confidence he's been knocked out before or not feel like the fight is very winnable if anything i wonder how what pettis's real thought process is because you can lie and tell yourself well i made some adjustments and he wasn't doing this and doing that but the fact of the matter is he was still winning that fourth round if he doesn't land that shot that's another that's four rounds in a row so um while the fight wasn't tremendously dramatic the way it ended and turned so quickly gives you an instant storyline, gives you something you could build off before you could have an instant rematch. But as far as competitiveness of it, it, it just wasn't very competitive. I don't tend to think that um, Horiguchi is damaged good. Some people think his, his durability may not be what we were told it was, but the way Pettis threw that kick and missed and spun around with full momentum, that knocked out almost anybody. Most people get knocked out with spinning back fists like that. So I can't even say that it means Horiguchi's chin is gone. And he didn't take a beating previous to it, so he should be actually pretty fresh. Those flash knockouts aren't as damaging as the ones that come after an extended war. So um, you could have an immediate rematch, and I would still favor Horiguchi because Pettis did not show me anything athletically or technically that says he can win that fight. So then that will lead us directly into talking about the um, Bellator Grand Prix, where we have a hell of a draw here. Let's look at this entire group. So... We have from top we have eight guys. We have Sergio Pettis, Gilji Horiguchi, Juan Archuleta, uh, Rafael Stotts, Patchy Mix, Magomed Magomedov, Leandro Higo, James Gallagher as the um, as the six men or eight men, excuse me, to take part in this contest. From that lineup, who do you think is the favorite and why? Uh, I'd say Horiguchi, if not him. Um, maybe Pettis, just because, like I said, he's he's a better athlete. He's got the best resume. He's actually been a guy who's had to, to fight through adversity. Most of these guys have not really had a lot of adversity in their time in Bellator. It's been pretty much one-way traffic. And he's, he's faced wrestlers. He's faced strikers. He's faced submission guys. He's faced great athletes. He's faced great technicians. If his chin is still in place, I still feel he's, he's the – He's a superior fighter. He's got the knockout power. I feel he could finish his submission, and he's a good enough wrestler where he can defend with his 
in line with his confident his footwork as a striker, he can defend and punish takedown attempts, and he has enough movement and power that if a guy doesn't have a certain pedigree on the feet, they'll never really get in a position to really take him down. And, and he's out wrestled bigger guys from bigger weight classes who've got established wrestling credentials. Um, it's hard for me to pick anybody outside of him. Um, I guess Pettis. Who's the other guy? Megamedov. Um, who's that guy? He might he might be another favorite. I, I could see. Um, Patchy Mix, his cardio is really bad. He gets fine his athleticism. Pettis, as good as he can be, doesn't have athleticism and isn't super, super durable. Gallagher does not have athleticism and isn't super durable. And Archuleta is a guy, excuse me, who's very durable, who's very seasoned, and fights at a grinding pace. But he's got harsh limitations as far as his defensive ability, his offensive depth, and his athleticism. So he can grind a certain a certain against certain component, he's always gonna be able to grind them out. But against the better class of guys who have as much physicality as he does, um, when his physicality is a determining factor, he doesn't have the speed, athleticism, or skill to turn fights any other way. So I, I would say um, um Megamedov and Horiguchi are the favorites. Who's the dark horse? Dark horse. It's weird as it might sound, <laughs> probably uh Probably Sergio Pettis is the champion. I was actually going to say that 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 was going to be my answer as well. Well, well there too. Um, imagine imagine being the champion of a of a promotion and you're the dark horse in a tournament. Yeah, like that's really like that's really something. But I mean, I get it because people were expecting him to lose on Friday and he almost did for four rounds of of that contest. So I totally understand how that's the case. Um, Let's talk about the other big fight from Saturday where Jose Aldo picked up a win over Rob Font. Aldo, man, he just, like, he's not the same guy that was the world beater back at 145 a decade ago, more than that, a little bit more of a decade ago, a decade ago but he still knows how to get the job done. He is, he is my, in my opinion, is an example of an NBA player who is 15, 20 years in, in the game where they can't beat you over athleticism anymore, but they've refined their game to know how to draw fouls, to know how to get to the free throw line, to know how to back it down, et cetera. They've added to their game over the years. What did you see from Aldo on Saturday that, that shows you that he's continuing to improve upon his game in a way that he can win at this point? I wouldn't even say that. He's like Michael Jordan and the fact that Michael Jordan's fundamentals of his game as he early in his career, he had the footwork, the post-ups, the mid-range jumpers, the the quick decisions on how how he attacks. Michael Jordan always he was a young man who played kind of an older style of game. So when he aged, the big thing that failed Michael Jordan wasn't his skill set; it was his durability and it was his cardio. Because at a certain age, you just can't compete at the same pace as other guys. You you can't do it night after night after night. Michael Jordan could give you maybe. 20, 20, 20, 20, have a big 40 or 6, 40 or 50 point game, and then it's going to be 12, 13, 15, 17 until he can work his way back up to 20. It's the same thing with Aldo. Aldo's game has always been minimalist in counters and strikes using setups, positioning, angles, and defense to allow him to control the pace of fights. He never really fought at a crazy pace. He was never really super busy or super active with pressure. He always kind of fought and slowed down deliberate, technical, patient, accurate pace. He's just doing that now. So now it's more of a necessity because if a fight gets out of hand, he doesn't have the energy reserves to draw on 
to pull away or even to hold serve. That's what happened against Peter Yan. It's ultimately what happened against Marlon Marais. Um, the fight against Font was, although he was a little bit more assertive in certain spots, um, used to be he used to let guys get off a little bit more defensively. He'd slip, slide around because he knew he could he could maintain that pace. I feel like even now there's a pace, he can't even maintain that pace like that anymore. So he's got to put a little bit more heat on the shots. He's got to be a little bit more forward to scare guys off or to make them hesitant to open up on him. Um, Font fought a good fight. He has a good skill set. He was able to pressure in spots. He was able to bring his cardio and the activity to bear against Aldo. But like I said earlier, when he gets to a certain caliber of athlete and when he faces a certain caliber of fighter who he doesn't have a tremendous advantage of over technically, he's not the same guy. He looks good, but he's not able to build the build momentum, establish it, and build on the momentum like he does. Against Cody Garbrandt, he built it, kept going. Against other guys, he overwhelmed them. He wasn't able to overwhelm Jose, and he wasn't able to continuously pressure him or continuously build the momentum. When he started building it, Jose would pop, 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 slip away, tie him up, disrupt the momentum, and then he'd have to build back up to it. And while he's building back up to it, Jose is just chopping away, picking away, scoring points. He was never able to build enough momentum where he could really take over the fight or we could really put Jose under duress. Um, and that's that's just something that comes with um, being basically at an elite level of fighting your entirety of your career and having a style that's based on efficiency, accuracy, and defensive awareness. Uh, Font's very good defensively, but he'll he'll take chances that will expose him and allow him to get out positioned and tied up, taken down, or countered. Jose Aldo is not about being out out positioned. He's not about putting serving himself up. He's not about taking unnecessary damage. He can take. He's willing to take damage. He's willing to get into pitched battles, but only under certain circumstances and only when certain things have been established um, as far as his counters, his leads, his defensive spacing, and his defensive awareness. Do you think that Aldo is still a title threat at this point? I don't know if he's a threat to win the title because I don't – If once again, if the same situation that happened to Font happened to Aldo. He faced Jan, and Jan – People forget Jan uses physicality and his volume a lot, but Jan is a very technical, very cerebral, very structured striker. He just leans on that. Uh, he leans on that durability to allow him to navigate spots, allow him to pressure people, allow him to put volume on people to exploit their lack of class. And even if they had, and in the case of Jose Aldo, who had the technical class and, and awareness to still be defensively sound at a certain point when somebody throws so much volume or puts so much pressure on you, there's going to be mistakes. Now, somebody else might make five to seven mistakes. Jose Aldo made one to two. But when you're facing a younger, fresher fighter who hits hard and is technical, those one to two mistakes turn into two to four, turn into 48, turn into eight to 12. Next thing you know, the fight's over. So is he a threat to get back to the title fight? Yes. I don't know that he has enough against a seasoned, technical, durable, busy fighter to win the title. If it was Aljamain Sterling, Jose Aldo would kick the hell out of Aljamain Sterling. If it was Corey Sanhagen, Jose Aldo would beat Corey Sanhagen. If it was T.J. Dillashaw, Aldo would beat the fuck out of Dillashaw because I don't know that Dillashaw would be able to hold up when he's not able to get control or land those shots because the guy's standing right in front of him. But against Peter Yawn, Peter Yawn has the ability to stay in range,
Walk Jose into body shots and walk him into hooks and right hands. But he also has the ability just to bite down, take whatever Jose has to offer, and if he can't get to Jose immediately, he's he, he can take two or three rounds, a straight punishment, just to push a pace, just to land those shots on the on the shoulders and on the elbows and on the arms and on the chest that'll eventually cut into Jose's gas gas tank, which will start slowing his reactions, slowing his footwork, slowing the amount of work movement he has in his feet, and eventually end up with him getting bowled over um, with the physicality and the power. So I think that Aldo looked exceptional on Saturday night, and I, I like what I like what I saw from Rob Font as well too. But um, as I mentioned earlier on the show, I would love to see him face someone like a Dominic Cruz yet, yet uh, or next. Excuse me. I think that the bantamweight picture has some has some other work that needs to be worked out at, at the top of the card, especially with the fact that Pion has already beaten Aldo and he still has that situation with Sterling to work through. Now he already um, beat Sterling too. He already beat who? I said he already beat Sterling too, if we're actually being real. I mean, yeah, you know, he was clearly been in that fight hands down. Um, I want to, we've been going for an hour, so I want us to get on to uh, boxing for a bit here and talk about Javante Davis's win on Sunday. Um, what did that do for his career and where does he go next? Um, well, I'll try to make this short. The best thing about the best thing about this recent month has been the lightweight division. It has been very active. You had Gambosas Lopez. This week you have Lomachenko, Kami. Last week we had Devin Haney, D- Jojo Diaz, Javante um, Davis, Isaac Cruz. Um, I feel like I said before, I felt bad for Haney because even though Haney beat the best opponent out of everybody as far as accomplishments, youth, freshness, and win streaks, he beat the best guy. He once again showed that he isn't super physical and he's not as sturdy as you would like a guy who talks the way he talks and has the ambitions he has. I think that it might be a result of him being at 135. Maybe at 140, it's a little bit different. The one thing I will say is he is not a power puncher. And the fact that he doesn't have this power against a better caliber of an opponent who has comparable athleticism and can walk through some of those shots, some of the dominance he's shown against Linares and Jojo Diaz will not be there. The fight that Isaac Cruz would put against Javante Davis, Jojo Diaz could have put against Haney, but for some reason he decided he was just going to pressure, not set his stuff up, not cut off at angles, not cut off Haney's pivots. He just made himself a, a target and let Haney use that strength, hand speed, and length advantage over him. He didn't do anything to make him really adjust on a consistent basis. And as a result, Haney was able to outpoint him in a fairly competitive and exciting fight, but ultimately a competitively one-sided fight. Against Tank Davis, uh, Isaac Cruz established himself as a potential top 10, top 7 type lightweight. Um, The thing about Davis is people keep telling me about his power. I don't think his power is what people say it is. What it is, is he's very, very, very fast. He hits you with shots you don't see coming. He freezes you one shot because you don't see it coming to catch you off guard, and then he cleans you up with another. Ultimately, I think that's what's given him his biggest success when he moved up to fight Barrios at 140, when he fought Leo Santa Cruz, and when he fought Isaac Cruz. Cruz couldn't match his speed, his hand speed, and... Cruz likes to fight with pressure and physicality, but he's not really a sharp boxer. He's more of a get in your face, attack the body, throw big, huge shots, break you down to the body, and then overwhelm you with the shot. 
was he showed that he can box if he needs to. He hurt his hand in the sixth round, fifth round, and he resorted to boxing. He was slipping. He was sliding. He's walking crews into shots. He was turning them, had him stumbling into ropes, caught him off balance, able to roll with shots with his shoulder, roll with them even when they hit clean. So a lot of the work that Easy Cruz did that made it look like he was doing a lot of damage, it wasn't as legitimate as most people seem to think it was. It looked a lot better than it was. That's not to say that Cruz didn't put some damage onto him because he was on the body from the beginning of the fight to the end of the fight. And it did bother Davis because Davis got a little hesitant in which shots he chose to look for as far as the counters and as far as the pace he fought at. You can say his hand hurt, but he wasn't moving as much and he wasn't as slick because those body shots kept him in positions and allowed Cruz to get to his head a couple times. You try to slide away, Cruz would dig to the body, come over the top. Sometimes he would duck under it and try to slip and come back under, but Cruz being so low to the ground, he couldn't really counter effectively always, and then Cruz would be able to get right back to the body, put him where he wanted to. The headshots is ultimately what Davis was able to slip and roll with that got him into the positions where he got back to the center ring and he was able to use his jab, use his lead hook, use his straight shots down the pipe to kind of exploit Cruz's lack of high-level defense. He has defense, but it's not high-level. But the one thing I want people to think about, and I said this on Twitter, when you're an elite fighter, the, the sign of an elite fighter is you make high-level fighters, you make regular fighters look terrible, you make elite fighters look regular. Terrence Crawford made Porter look as close to average as anybody's ever done. Roy Jones used to make world champions look like second, third, fourth-tier fighters. Same thing with um, Lomachenko did the same thing to, to Walters. He did it to other fighters. Um, same thing uh, Inouye has done in his weight class. Same thing Canelo's done. With The guys keep saying Canelo keeps picking fights. He's making world champions look like bones. That's how you know he's great. Javante Davis has never done that. When he fought Jose Pedraza, yeah, he won, but Pedraza still looked at the caliber that we thought he was. When he fought Leo Santa Cruz, he knocked him out. But he didn't make Leo Santa Cruz look like he shouldn't have been in the ring with him. When he fought Mario Barrios, an unproven guy at the, wor- at the world-class elite level, he made Mario Barrios look like an elite-type fighter. And when he fought Easy Cruz, Easy Cruz looked like a top five through seven lightweight. So everybody that J- Davis fights ends up making their reputation where they're better than we thought they were against him. And when you're a truly elite fighter, you make guys like him look like they shouldn't have even been on the card. And it's a bad trend that he's never able to separate himself enough to where he can say, where you can say, like, these guys can't touch him. Every fight you see new wrinkles from him, you see a little bit more poise, depth, balance in his skill set, and balance in his approaches and diversity. But at the same instance, you see guys who aren't known as killers or elite fighters putting him into tough spots, going extensive rounds with him, and exploiting certain holes in his game, which their resume and their caliber of talent does not say they should be able to do. So even though Isaac Cruz's name has been made, I feel there's been a little bit of smudging put on Tank Davis's because he looked, he showed the boxing, he showed the athleticism, he clearly won, but he didn't show there was a separation between him and everybody else. If anything, he showed that these guys who we thought of as nothing, I didn't think that, but other people did, are a lot closer to him than should be comfortable with a fighter at his caliber. Floyd Mayweather made... Manny Pacquiao looked normal. He made Shane Mosley look normal. He made Cotto look like less of than the Hall of Famer. Javante Davis is taking guys who aren't really elite and making them look elite against him. 
that's a problem as far as when you're trying to sell me that you're really the best and guys, you're really untouchable. If you're so untouchable, Mario Barra should have been got the hell out of there in less than eight, 10 rounds. If you're so untouchable, Isa Cruz should have been embarrassed in there, not competitive. And yeah, you knocked out Leo Santa Cruz, but before that, that fight was 50-50. That wasn't a bad fight from Leo Santa Cruz. He just got caught. So Davis is still the moneymaker. He's still the cash cow. He's still got Mayweather behind him. He's got the casual fans behind him. He's got the money behind him. And he's yet had yet another exciting, impressive fight. But if you look at it between the lines of the subtext, it's hard to really say that he's the best of the best because he has not fought the best. He's been fighting second second tier guys. Let's just be nice. Second tier guys or undersized guys. And even in doing so, he hasn't looked truly dominant as a fighter. He hasn't looked like a Terrence Crawford or a prime Floyd Mayweather or a prime uh, Saul Canelo or a prime Roy Jones Jr. or even a prime Tyson Fury. He's looked like a very good lightweight. He has not looked like the very best lightweight. I appreciate that analysis. Bro. That's some good thing, stuff there. And it was a big win for Javante Davis. Is he a draw? Do people really stop to watch him compete? He's he's the biggest draw. I mean, as far as in boxing, I mean, Canelo is far away the biggest draw. But Canelo, but Javante Davis. He's not a, like a Floyd Mayweather draw, but as far as everybody else, Devin Haney doesn't have a fan base. Teofimo Lopez really doesn't have a fan base. Lomachenko has one, but he's never been a pay-per-view guy. Lomachenko's probably got something com- comparable, but as far as the guy who gets the most attention and draws the most attention, Javante Davis is probably the biggest guy in the division, and that's why people want him, not because he's proven that he's the best. He doesn't even hold all the belts. It's that He's the guy that fans think is the best because Floyd keeps telling them that. And he's the guy that's considered the cash cow in that weight division. He probably gets the most money. He has the most money behind him, and he gets the most promotion out of anybody. So guys keep mentioning his name, even though he hasn't beaten an elite guy. All the guys who are considered elite division, Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, Combosos, Tiafimo Lopez, Lomachenko, he hasn't fought any of them. He, I mean, he hasn't even fought a Jojo Diaz. He hasn't fought a, a Jorge Linares. So it's his appeal and the way he's packaged and the way Mayweather has moved him that makes him, puts him in people's crosshairs. Not the accomplishments and not the belts because he doesn't, his real actual accomplishments and the real belts he holds don't really hold any weight in comparison to some of the other guys on, on the list. His biggest thing is, his biggest thing is he's the A side and he is the A side. He's the most popular. He's put on the biggest events. He's had the most exciting and dramatic fights. And that's what allows him to have leverage, not because he's far and away a better fighter. I'm not saying he is or isn't, but that's not why. Floyd Mayweather was box office and he was far and away the best. Canelo, box office and far and away the best. De La Hoya, box office and far and away the best. Javante Davis is box office. I have not seen proof that he is far and away the best right now. Good stuff, Trisha. Did you freeze? Are you there? No, I'm here. Okay, okay, good, good. So let's go ahead and close out the show. We've been running a little bit long tonight, so let's close out the show and let everybody yeah, There's know. a lot, man. There's a lot to cover. I mean, it's, it's a lot to cover this weekend and from last weekend as well, too. What are you working on and where can people find your stuff? Um, I, of course, have the article about seven things you need to know about Pena and Nunez. I re-released my articles on Twitter, um, Captain America and Breaking Down Captain America's Fight Style and Daredevil, and I did a poll Who's not who's the best boxer in the UFC? We keep asking that question. I want to know who's the best boxer in the MCU. So you can uh, look on my Twitter feed, vote. Captain America, 
Is it the man without fear, Daredevil? Who's got the best hands in the MCU? So I saw that piece going around on Twitter this week. So you definitely had a lot of attention there. Um, I am, always, as always, covering as much professional wrestling as, as possible. So that's where you'll find all of my content there and also my MMA content over at um, Fansided. So we'll be back next week. It'll be our, yeah, next week will be our last show for the year. We'll be back um, starting in January. Um, yeah, because the next day is Christmas, then I'm out of the country. So, yeah, thank you, everybody. Country. Man, Going to Mexico for New Year's, man. That's the plan, at least, unless if something pops up with COVID. But I'll be lucky to get out of the neighborhood. Nah, dog. I'm trying. I'm out of the country. I like my goal is now to be somewhere warm for New Year's every year. Kicking it off this year with Mexico. So let's see how that. One, goes. one of these days, I'm gonna get there. One of these days, I'll get there. Hey, man. We'll have to do it up together. Take Mike with us. But yes, yeah. everybody. We're gonna go ahead and close anywhere, to get rid, anywhere to get rid of these kids. I ain't gonna tell nobody. Just be gone. I don't know. I don't know where you where you're gonna put them, but you just can't bring them. That's all I care about. Hey, so, We'll be back next week, everyone. Thank you for joining us today, and then everyone have a great weekend and stay safe. All right. Have a good evening, everybody.